Hi, I'm Umushu. And I'm Lindsay Claiborne, and you're listening to Beyond the Microscope. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Beyond the Microscope. We have a great guest today. We have Kathy Mont. She's a planetary scientist at the Southwest Research Institute. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm going to start with the question we always start with, which is, what does a planetary scientist do? <laughs> there was actually a survey um, that was done by the American Astronomical Society where planetary scientists were asked to describe their job. And there were about as many answers as there were respondents to the survey. Because <laughs> what we do is very interdisciplinary and it varies so much based on the topics that you study that it's a wide range of things that we do. I have personally done geology, atmospheric studies, uh, plasma studies, looking at the solar wind and comets. Uh, so I basically do whatever they're willing to fund me to do. do you, so what are you working on now? Right now I'm working on two projects. I'm working on the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which has been in orbit around the moon since 2009. And I work on the Lyman Alpha Mapping Project instrument. It's the ultraviolet spectrometer. And what we do is we take starlight reflecting off of the moon to map the moon in the ultraviolet. And then the other project that I work on is Rosetta, and I'm on the ion-electron spectrometer on that project, which measures ions and electrons, uh, both in the solar wind and then in the uh, atmosphere or the coma of a comet. Though that mission, the operations of that just recently ended, so we're now in the data analysis phase. What what does that entail? <laughs> Humor me for a minute. Like what what exactly? I mean, you're measuring all these things. What exactly are you measuring, and and how do you do that? Because it sounds fascinating. Yeah, uh, with the ultraviolet, we're measuring photons that are reflected off of the moon, and then we break them down into what wavelengths they're they're in. And we can do measurements both during the daytime and at night. We I prefer the nighttime measurements because I'm mapping part of the moon that never receives sunlight. So I'm looking at uh, areas where we think there might be water in the moon because it's always cold. So with that one, we're measuring photons. Uh, with the other instrument, we're measuring charged particles like electrons and then uh, protons and charged helium. And then when we were in the coma of the comet, we were measuring charged water and charged carbon dioxide. And so all these measurements are to do what exactly? Uh, well, like what I said before with the moon, we're looking for water on the moon. And that's partly just because we're interested in the science, because anytime there's something curious, we love looking for it. Uh, the other pers purpose of looking for water on the moon is for future human exploration of the moon. If we send a, or if we build a moon base at the South Pole, we could have access to water and other volatiles that could be used for perhaps a, a well, there's a variety of uses for volatiles that would be found there. And then um, there's also places where there's peaks that receive almost constant sunlight. So we have locations that would be ideal for power source and sources of water. And that's what we're exploring with that project. With the Rosetta project, we're looking for, we're trying to understand how a comet 
interacts with the sun and the solar wind coming from the sun. And that's been explored previously by several spacecraft that quickly flew by comets at multiple kilometers per second. Um, what we did with Rosetta was we we got up to a comet and then we orbited it for a couple of years. So we got very different measurements from any other spacecraft measurements and we got much closer measurements as well. So we were looking at like areas of the comet's coma where the, the one thing that I worked on was where collisions were changing the interaction of the solar wind with the coma itself. So I found a boundary where these collisions were basically stopping the motion of the ions when they were going kilometers per second to where they were just not moving at all. That sounds like a, a pretty hefty discovery. I mean, what is that? What's the next step with that? What do you do with that kind of information? Well, I think for me, the next step is to look back at previous spacecraft flybys. There's one spacecraft called Giotto that flew through the coma of Comet Halley and got close enough to see the same feature that I observed with Rosetta. And what I want to do is pull the data that was taken by Giotto and compare it with the data that we have and show that there's similarities between the two comets, even though the comets themselves are very different. The one that Rosetta was orbiting was what we call a weak comet. It wasn't producing a lot of water because it's really small. And Halley is a very strong comet. That's why it's so bright. It's one of the few comets that's able to be seen by the naked eye when it comes by the Earth. And it produces a huge amount of water. So the interaction of that comet with the solar wind is expected to be different from the interaction of our comet, churyumov gerasimenko <laughs> That's a mouthful with the solar wind. So my next step is to compare the two and show where there are similarities. So how does this data get to us? In what form is it coming to us? Um, what, what our instruments do is they basically have sensors that detect an event. Like with the lamp instrument, it detects when a photon hits the detector. So it counts the number of photons coming into the instrument. And then it, se it sends a number of counts at a certain time in a certain location back to the ground. And then we turn that into maps based on our understanding of the location of the spacecraft and what that number of photons or the counts means. We convert the counts back to photons. And that takes a real strong understanding of the instrument and how sensitive it is. With the ion electron spectrometer, we also get counts, but it's counting ions or electrons that are hitting the detector. And we filter those uh, in steps, like we'll step through different energies. So we figure we get a number of counts for each different energy that we step through. And then we also are able to step through different directions in a 360 degree field of view by 90 degrees. So we're basically just counting events and then turning what we understand about those events into information either on photons or electrons and ions. I want to get back to what you said about water and the moon. Yeah. I don't think I've ever put those two things together. Do we actually think there's water on the moon or yeah. is this... There is? Yes. Uh, there's... Is that common knowledge? Um, I think there probably been press releases about it. There are several instruments that oh, have man. detected water 
on the moon using different methods. Um, one of the most well-known is neutron detectors where they measure neutrons coming off of the moon and there will be a depression in the neutrons reflected off the moon when hydrated minerals or hydration is present or basically hydrogen and that's an indication that water may be present. Uh, radar observations that are taken from the Earth have also been able to detect indications of water in the South Pole region of the Moon. And there's a radar instrument on LRO that has done some recent uh, observations that has shown a large amount of water at depth in the permanently shaded regions of the South Pole. And then what our instrument does is because we're looking in the ultraviolet and in just a couple hundred nanometers, we only see the very top surface layer, like the first top microns of the regolith. And so we can see surface frost with our instrument, and we've been able to observe a certain amount of surface frost in the permanently shaded regions. We've also noticed what, or observed what looks like a change in the surface frost as a function of time of day on the moon. So when it's nighttime on the moon, it'll collect frost because of just the small amount of water that's in the exosphere of the moon. And then during the day, that frost will burn off and go into the atmosphere. And then back at night, it'll come back onto the surface. And we recently um, did an operation with our instrument to make it more sensitive. We have a special door that we call a fail-safe door that was designed to basically be blown off permanently to increase the signal that we get during the day. And we've been operating for about seven years now, and we decided to open that door to increase our sensitivity so that we'd be able to study that change of water on the moon as a function of time of day more easily. So how, how much water are we talking about on the moon? Is it a significant amount that is there, or is it kind of... It, traces of it. That's one of the big questions that LRO is working on now because we've got all these different instruments making different observations like we're looking at the top layer, neutron detectors looking deeper, radars looking even deeper than that. So we're trying to estimate where most of the water is, how much water is there, and there's really a limited amount of information we can get from remote studies. But uh, the focus of the mission now has become more of an, a cross-instrument comparison to try and get a better understanding of that. And we want to look at how it does change seasonally and as of time of day. Um, it is, would this be something, uh, a, would these techniques be what would also be used to try to find water on Mars? Yes, they are very similar techniques. Um, the neutron detector has been used at Mars to look for hydrated minerals and that can either find where water is now or it can find places where water could have been in the past and it influenced the mineral, the mineral content of the surface. So those are useful techniques also at Mars. How, how new is this tech? I mean, this doesn't seem like sort of brand new, sophisticated analysis. This has sort of been ongoing for a while, right? Yeah. Uh, I think the earliest missions that, that, well, for Mars, the neutron detector has been in orbit for some time, for several years. Um, 
there were instruments on the Voyager spacecraft that would have similar capabilities. So we've we've been developing the technology over the decades and improving technology, but it's something, some of it has been around for a while. I'm not a complete expert on the history of instrumentation, so. Yeah, but it's not like some brand new, newfangled idea that just was being tried out for the well, first time. Well, our instrument, the ultraviolet instrument, it, this is a brand new, newfangled idea to basically use starlight to try and map the surface of the moon. So that that's something that's been groundbreaking. Um, I think a similar technique after we did our work was done at Mercury, looking at their permanent the permanently shaded regions on Mercury, and they have found that there's water in the permanently shaded regions of Mercury as well. So this isn't something that's limited to the moon. And you would never expect water to be on Mercury with how close it is to the sun. But it's been detected there as well. How did you become a planetary scientist? Well, I have always loved space. I really wanted to be an astronaut when I was growing up. But that, you know how that never works out for the large majority of people. So exploring planetary science and space was kind of the second best thing for me. And I took a non-traditional roundabout path to get here. When I graduated from high school, I didn't have enough money to go to college, so I joined the Navy so that I could take advantage of the GI Bill and then get some other experience. And I spent seven years serving in the Navy. Um, I got out after seven years and spent 10 years as a stay-at-home mom, raising two wonderful kids. And during that time, I also worked on my degree. So I completed my master's degree by the time my, my oldest had turned 10. And after that, I was able to get into a PhD program and start doing research, and I've been doing that since then. Did you know that this field was sort of the, the field, I mean, obviously, besides being an astronaut, right? But like, yeah. why, why, you know, studying these kinds of things as opposed to aerospace engineering or something like that? Yeah, uh, I think for me, science has always been much more appealing than engineering. Uh, engineering is more kind of doing things where science is just looking at things and trying to answer questions and wondering about them. So the... It's more, <laughs> I don't quite know how to describe it, but I definitely have always known that science interests me more than engineering and space, whatever side of space that I was able to get involved in was what I wanted to do. So I would have been happy doing astrophysics and studying galaxies that are far away, anything to look at the stars. What makes you excited about your research or what is exciting about the research you're working on? Obviously, I mean, it sounds fascinating to me anyway, but I, you know, what is it that sort of gets you really excited or when you discover something or find something or look at something new? Um, I, it, it's a variety of things that get me excited about what I do. Uh, one of the things that I love is being involved in NASA missions and ESA missions because it's this collection of some of the most brilliant people that I have ever met working together to accomplish something that is just phenomenal and groundbreaking. Everything that we do on a day-to-day -day basis is something that's never been done before, and we're looking at things that have never been looked at before. So it's really exciting to be a part of something like that. 
And one of the things that was really exciting about the about Rosetta is that's a European Space Agency mission. So it's got instruments that have been contributed by more than a dozen countries. And we were part of a consortium that was made up of teams from five different countries. And we regularly get together and work together on analyzing the data and sharing information and sharing ideas. And having that opportunity to collaborate internationally has been just a phenomenal experience. Are there uh, new projects that are coming up that you're excited about in particular? Um, I think one of the, the projects that's coming up in the shorter term is the Europa mission. That's going to be really exciting to send a spacecraft out to explore Europa and look for life. I'm not involved in that mission. Longer term, NASA is looking into planning an ice giants mission, which sends a spacecraft out to either Uranus or Neptune, hopefully both. And I'm right now serving on the team where we're defining the science for an upcoming mission. And we're providing NASA with guidance on what we what would be the best science return if we design a mission, say, with a single spacecraft to one planet versus two spacecrafts to both, and whether they fly by or orbit. So I'm really excited about the possibility of going out and visiting Uranus and Neptune in the future. That, I, I'm just fascinated by this idea of designing the science. I mean, it's got to yeah. be hard to design a, a scientific study without knowing what you're going to get or what will work or what won't work. I mean, how do you even start that discussion? Yeah, we build on what we've learned from previous missions and from previous observations of both planets. There were Voyager flybys of both Uranus and Neptune, and we learned quite a bit from both of those flybys. But Voyager also did a flyby of Jupiter and Cassini, or Jupiter and Saturn. And with the Cassini mission to Saturn, we learned how little we actually learned from Voyager because Cassini, after arriving at Saturn, more than doubled the number of moons of Saturn that we were aware of because of the, the ability, having a camera in orbit around Saturn for so long. And the amount that we have learned about the planet itself and about the larger moons has been indescribable. I have had the opportunity to work on the Cassini mission and studied the atmosphere of Titan. And what we were able to learn from having a spacecraft in orbit about Titan was groundbreaking. Um, and I think we would have the same thing if we sent a spacecraft to orbit around Uranus or Neptune. So what we do is we take what we learned from Voyager about those two planets and their, their moons. And then we also look at what we gained from Cassini at Saturn, and then try and build a mission similar to Cassini for each of these two planets that would provide the same type of return that they successfully did with Cassini. That just seems like a massive undertaking. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's why it takes a team. As an individual alone, there's no way I could have done something like that. And so we have a team of, of 14 scientists who are defining the science. And then we're working with a group of engineers who are designing hypothetical spacecraft. And we're, we're doing exchange back and forth on what instruments we need, how much data those instruments would need, what the 
power constraints would be and getting estimates of what the cost would be and then feeding back into the science gain and loss. So it's been a fun experience being a part of that project. Is it ever the case where the engineers might come back and say, no, we can't do that science or uh, you're asking for too oh, much? Yeah. <laughs> All the time. That is, oh, yes. That is um, where I work. We design instruments and then we propose to NASA and to the European Space Agency to fly our instruments on their missions. And I see that all the time internally, that back and forth between scientists and engineers where we go to the engineers and say, well, I want to do this. And the engineer comes back and says, that's impossible. <laughs> and then you have that iteration back and forth between what the scientist wants and what the engineer can actually provide with a legitimate real instrument. <laughs> And it's it, it's an interesting exchange, and it, it, it's kind of cool because the scientists do push the engineers to think outside the box and discover new ways of doing things. But the engineers also have to get the scientists to come back to reality and say, okay, I understand this is physically impossible. What other ways can we do this? Nice try. Try again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> do you... um. In, in your work of, of with your teams that you work with, I mean, we sort of talked about engineers. Is it is it a bunch of you that are just sort of analyzing data and doing scientific research, or do you work with engineers and like I don't know all, all sorts of different sort of astrophysicists and then geophysicists and and you know whatever the categories are? Is it your team is made up of lots of different people, or are you sort of operate it within your your sphere of knowledge? Yeah, for scientists, that you can end up in both environments. In fact, I've got a couple of projects where it's just me and one or two other people working on it, like um, I'm modeling Titans and Pluto's atmosphere, and I'm working with one other scientist and a couple of graduate students. So it's a small team with a very focused project and just a single tool that we're using and comparing with data that's been on the ground for a while. Uh, with the missions, you have very large teams that include scientists and engineers, and then the, there's a lot more people involved in a lot wider variety of roles with the missions because you have to operate the spacecraft, you have to operate the instruments, you have to process the data, you have to write software for the spacecraft and the instruments, and do a lot of planning. I was involved in the planning on Rosetta from the science side, so I would work with our operation software folks to determine what inputs they would put into the software for observations that we would need to make based on my understanding of the expected science of, of the operations of the spacecraft. So that's what I love about working on missions is there's a wide variety of work and it's a broader team than just a group of scientists focused on a very narrow topic. What's your average day like? I mean, if there is one, um, is it crunching numbers? Is it calling it dealing with different people or different teams? And what, what is it? What, what's the variety like? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I travel quite a bit. I'm usually gone about one week each month. Um, I've had a lot of international travel this year because Rosetta has been in the peak of its operations and science analysis. So I've gone to Europe several times to meet with people about planning and analysis and science. Um, and then I go to regular meetings where you have the broader scientific community getting together and exchanging the, like, you'll have 
representatives from a variety of missions. There's a meeting coming up in December that also includes Earth scientists as well, so you get an even broader exposure to geosciences. Uh, so travel is a large part of what I do. When I am here, I'm dividing my time between meetings and trying to sit down and do data analysis and writing. And the meetings are important, but they definitely take away from the science. Heard that one before. Yeah. <laughs> Has there ever been any uh, data that you've uh, come across that's been um, unexpected or a surprise? Um, yeah, actually with the LRO, uh, we had made some maps of the moon in Lyman Alpha wavelengths. So... And at the South Poles, when we look at the moon in the Lyman Alpha wavelengths at night, the permanently shaded regions are dark compared to areas that receive sunlight, which is really cool. And we don't fully understand it, but we suspect that that's because the, the soil has much higher porosity or a, a lot more space between each grains in the soil. And... I was looking at some of the maps that we had made of the permanently shaded regions and found this bright patch in a permanently shaded region. So it didn't make sense that it was bright, but everything else was dark. And when I started comparing that location of that bright patch with other observations by other instruments, like there's a, a topography map that was produced by laser altimetry, the, the LOLA instrument. Um, lunar orbiter laser altimeter and their topography map is able to show features within the permanently shaded regions that are hard to get pictures of because there's no sunlight and that map showed a small crater within this permanently shaded region that was at the place where I was seeing the bright patch and when we started thinking about why it would be a bright patch compared to the dark region around it, we realized that that was a young crater on geological timescales. And what happened when that crater formed was that the porous soil that's common to the permanently shaded regions was crushed by the formation of the crater itself. And it was bright because it wasn't porous where that crater had formed. So that was a, a really cool and exciting discovery. And that's that is really interesting. How long did it take you to figure that out? Like to make to go from there's a weird bright spot here to oh now we understand that this is a new crater and that's why. Yeah, it. I think the longest thing was basically going through the data because we can make the the maps on a monthly basis. So we take a month of observations and make a map, or we sum over all of the observations. And we, because we're making our observations at night, we don't get very many photons, so we have to sum over a lot of observations. But I made a whole bunch of different maps over different time periods, and I realized that bright patch was there all the time. So it wasn't a statistical anomaly in the data. So it, that was the longest thing that it took me to convince me that I was actually seeing a real feature and not something that was just an artifact in the data. And then it was just a matter of trying to figure out what the cause was. And as soon as I realized there was a crater at the location of that bright patch, that was what made sense for the reason that we were seeing a bright patch. And then when we looked at the radar observations of that crater, 
that also showed that it was bright in the radar wavelengths, which would show surface roughness. Um, that means really blocky material that would have been kicked up by the formation of a crater as well. So between our observations and the radar observations, we could definitely confirm that it was a, a geologically young crater. So Kathy, you had mentioned having a human base on the moon. How realistic is that, or how close are we to that? Is it some technology gap that we don't have yet, or is it something more political in terms of uh, the amount of funding that we need? I think funding is a big thing, and that is always unfortunately tied to politics. Um, a lot of the technology that we had for the Apollo era, we have lost because we haven't maintained the knowledge base for that, so we would have to relearn some things. Um, I think the best opportunity to get a base on the moon would be international cooperation. The European community right now is in the process of actively making plans for a lunar base in the future. I don't know what year they're targeting, but they seem to be the most driven politically and they're putting the most financially into it. Uh, for the U.S., we have set the goal of sending humans to Mars. And one of the things that keeps going back and forth is whether sending humans back to the moon first is the right first step or if we should just go straight to Mars and the plans keep changing back and forth. I personally would like to see us send humans to the moon and have a base on the moon before we go to Mars, but that... Uh, that seems to me the best option. So do you, 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 you study a lot of different things. I mean, you've worked on, on comets, you've worked on NASA missions and other things like that. Do you have a particular thing you like studying? Is it planets? Is it comets? Is it the moon? I mean, what, is there one that's better than the other? Or are they all interesting in their own way? I think what my favorite thing to do is to look at the solar system as a whole and look at how it has, how it formed originally and how it has evolved over time. And I got started doing that with Titan, where I looked at how Titan's atmosphere has evolved over time based on the composition of the atmosphere right now. What we looked at was isotope ratios um, in nitrogen and in methane. So the isotopes of nitrogen are either 14, which is the most common one, um, that has seven protons and seven neutrons in the nucleus. The rare isotope of nitrogen has an extra neutron in the, the nucleus, so it's a little bit heavier. And there's only 1%, maybe more, of that in the atmosphere of Titan. And so what I've looked at is nitrogen measurements of the isotopes throughout the entire solar system, and studied how Titan's atmosphere has evolved over time and what that means for the formation of Titan's atmosphere. And then I've applied that to looking at Mars and Pluto and Triton as well. Looking forward, I know you said there's a few missions that are coming up. What do you hope to be able to work on and what do you hope to be able to sort of participate in or, or see in the future of the, of the field you work in? Well, I definitely hope to see and have the chance to work on an Ice Giants mission. That would be a really awesome opportunity. Of course, I might be in my 80s by the time it arrives at the planets. <laughs> but hey. Well, that shouldn't stop you. I don't understand yeah. why that's a problem. Yeah. I'll be watching my grad students do that work, maybe. <laughs> my grad students who will be full scientists by that time. 
Um, and it would be fun to get involved in the Europa mission. I don't know what the opportunities will be. Um, one of the things that NASA does is they have a participating scientist call that allows people who are not on the original instrument teams to still be participants on a mission. And I'm hoping to be able to take advantage of that because Europa would be really fun to explore as well. It just seems like there's so many options out there. Yeah, um, the options aren't as good as they were about five or six years ago because of the political budget cuts, mm -hmm. unfortunately, particularly for the outer solar system. Um, there was only enough money to continue with the main, the main missions to Mars, and the Europa mission ended up being delayed by several years because of budget cuts. So we would have been participating in a Europa mission much sooner and collaborating more with the European Space Agency, if not for budget cuts. And so we could be doing more. <laughs> Here, speaking of budget cuts, you know, with, with Elon Musk and, and SpaceX and Virgin Galactic and, and Blue Origins and stuff doing their own space exploration or, you know, tourism in space, yeah. do you see the potential for private research also, or is that too hard to coordinate um that actually there are scientists engaging with these companies to try and include science on each of their flights uh, i know that um x and spacex um are working on contracts with scientists where nasa will actually help fund their participation or their ability to fly on some of these flights to do observations of the earth. And that's something I've been interested in getting involved in as well. I've been doing these measurements in atmospheres across the solar system that would also be interesting to do in the earth's atmosphere. So I'm, I think there are a lot of very good opportunities for science in human spaceflight or in commercial spaceflight. So we'll just sign you up for the next Virgin flight, right? Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, if only we could just give out those tickets. Yeah. I think most of the science that we'll be able to do though is sticking our instrument on and then watching them take off and waiting for them to come back down. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. So close. Yeah. Get that data at least. <laughs> <laughs> You're like I almost was there. Something I yeah. touched went up there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Kathy, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time, and it was really interesting. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this. Hey, you're still here. Thanks for sticking around to the end of the show. Help other people find this podcast by giving us a rating on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Scope Podcast. Our theme music was composed by The Copy Cuts. Just